The New Testament reading is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, page 959 in the Pew Bible. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're taking a short break from Philippians around Christmas here to look at the lectionary readings from the gospel concerning the birth of Jesus. So today it's from the Gospel of Matthew. Next Sunday it will be from the Gospel of Luke. My uh, reflections on this, I have to give credit where it's due, on this passage have been uh, greatly aided by a little devotional by Sinclair Ferguson called, I think, The Dawning of Grace that Kelsey and I have been reading. But um, I don't want you to get overly uh, uh, misleading pictures of us reading devotionals that it's like this pastoral scene. It's more like the beginning of Home Alone when everybody's running around crazy and like a little bit of devotion here and there. That's, but we've been reading it and it's had some uh, really shaped how I think about this. So I want to give credit up front to uh, Sinclair Ferguson for some of the thoughts in this uh, sermon on Matthew 1. Our reading from Matthew begins, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. But it's not really the story of Jesus' birth, is it? Matthew tells us quite quickly at the end of verse 25, Mary gave birth to a son. Uh, The story is really about Joseph coming to terms with Jesus' birth. And indeed, verse 18 uh, is more literally the beginning of Jesus Christ was like this, or the genesis of Jesus Christ was like this. That's the word Matthew uses is genesis, the title of the first book of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Matthew 1.1 uses the same word. It's the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew is taking us all the way back to Genesis, rooting the story of Jesus in the story of Abraham and the story of Israel and the story of David and ultimately in the story of creation itself. Do you remember what we find at the beginning of Genesis? After God creates the heavens and the earth, The earth is formless and void, and there's darkness over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. All is darkness, 
chaos, disorder, and yet the Holy Spirit is there moving, preparing for God to speak and form the earth by his word. And we see that same pattern in our passage this morning. Joseph's life is thrown into darkness, chaos, disorder. And then God's word once again speaks and forms Joseph's life, just as it formed, God's word formed the earth. But it's not just Joseph who's affected. Matthew is telling us this is the beginning of the renewal of all things. It begins like creation began because this is the beginning of recreation of God's redemptive reformation of the whole world. And how does it begin? With a baby. Our outline this morning is simple. God refines, God reassures. God refines, God reassures. First, God refines. God refines. We might also say God tests. In the Old Testament, the same words are used, the same word groups for refining metals and testing people. At important junctures throughout the Bible, God tests Abraham, Levi, David, Hezekiah, and especially Israel. We need to be careful here. When God tests people, we shouldn't think of a test like a sort of sword-in-the-stone trial that only the one who's worthy can pull the sword out, and God's sitting in heaven wringing his hands, hoping someone passed the test. That's not the image. Rather, the biblical image of testing is connected to this image of refining metal. Proverbs 17.3 makes this link explicitly. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. In metalworking, metal is separated from ore by intense heat, and that smelting process makes metal useful. And so refining by fire becomes a picture in the Old Testament for the costly and demanding process of transformative growth. God tests the hearts. He refines his people. Deuteronomy 8 reflects on God testing and refining Israel in the wilderness. Here's from Deuteronomy. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you and do you good in the end. In Deuteronomy, Moses links God testing with God humbling and says it's for your good in the end. We see the same theme continued in the New Testament. Uh, James, for example, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing is for our good. A Bible scholar Walter Moberly comments, God may be especially at work in those situations which are humanly unwelcome and painful. Testing is necessary for human beings to become truly themselves, and so is for human good. Testing may be searing and demanding. Testing is the action of God in the world. Okay, we get the big idea. God refines people by testing them. 
It's a searing and demanding process that's symbolized by intense heat. It's painful, but it's ultimately for our good. But what does this have to do with Joseph? Back to Matthew 1. Now, the beginning of Jesus Christ was like this. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, everything seems perfect, at least for the first half of the verse. Jewish betrothals were much more serious than modern-day engagements. It was a serious legal contract that could only be broken off by a formal divorce proceedings. The betrothal process could last up to a year, and during this time, the man and woman were not supposed to spend time alone together. The whole betrothal then culminated in a wedding feast and wedding blessings, and then the man formally took the woman into his own house. Well, Mary and Joseph are in this interim period. They're legally betrothed, but Joseph has not yet taken Mary into his house. It's true that uh, 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 women, girls could be betrothed as young as 12, uh, according to rabbinic law, but there's no reason to think that Mary was as young as legally possible. She's probably 16, Joseph a few years older. Everything seems perfect. And then... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew doesn't tell us how Joseph found out that Mary was with child. Was he suspicious when she was sent off to cousin Elizabeth's house for several months? Did he start to notice a baby bump that even Mary's most flowing robes couldn't hide? Did her parents sit him down and explain things to him? Did Mary herself send a secret message? Matthew doesn't tell us. All we know is that he found out after the fact. He found out she was with child. Think about this. In Luke's gospel, Mary is warned beforehand by a messenger, you are going to have a baby. You will miraculously conceive and give birth to a son. But Joseph doesn't get a similar heads up. Joseph's life seems perfect. Everything's going according to plan. He's betrothed to a sweet lady who is sincere in her faith. He's not rich, but his carpentry business is going well. He can provide for their needs. He sees how their whole life is going to unfold. Everything is going according to plan. And now this. Mary is pregnant, and Joseph knows that he is not the father. Suddenly, everything comes crashing down. His life is thrown into darkness and chaos. Everything seems to be falling apart. Joseph is a righteous man, Matthew tells us, and yet God allows him to be broken. God allows his life to fall apart before reassuring him with good news. God is testing and refining the man who would raise and protect Jesus, God's own son. Joseph must pass through the searing, demanding, refining process to be made serviceable for God's purposes. In verse 19, Joseph wrestles through this. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph is just and merciful. Justice and mercy meet in God's own character, but rarely in our own characters. We stress righteousness and justice, but forget mercy. Or we emphasize mercy with little care for the just demands of the law. Joseph is a just man. He believes Mary has committed adultery, that she's not the woman he thought she was, and so according to the law, he ought not marry her. Okay, he knows he can't go that way. It would be against the law, against God's law. 
Now, Joseph could bring Mary before the court to determine if the adultery was consensual, but the trial would bring shame and public humiliation on Mary. And so instead, Joseph resolves to divorce her quietly. This would have been costly for Joseph. It's saying, I'm the one who's deciding to end this marriage. I want to divorce her, and so therefore I will pay the bride price to her family. It's costly to be just and merciful. He's trying to follow justice and yet also show mercy, and so it's going to cost him. Holding justice, true justice, and true mercy together is costly, and this is at the very heart of the gospel. God is just and merciful, and so he takes the cost of our own rebellion on himself. Well, Joseph is resolved to, in his course of action, but he's still unsettled as he sleeps on it. As he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Let's pause here for a moment. What do we see? God is refining Joseph, the man who would guard Jesus, God's king. Joseph is already a just man, but God allows him to pass through this costly and demanding process to refine him. Transformative growth is necessarily painful. We know that God is already at work. Uh, Matthew tells us in verse 18, this baby is from the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know that yet. From his perspective, his life is in ruin. In fact, his life looks like the earth in Genesis 1-2. Everything's topsy-turvy, formless and void. Darkness over deep waters. And yet here is the Holy Spirit at work. God refines. God refines his people through trials, through searing and demanding processes. And that means sometimes when things look most bleak from our perspective, that's when God is at work in our lives. Many times our lives are a mess because we've made a mess of things. Sometimes God just lets things go off the rails in order to refine us. But whatever the cause of the mess, when things seem at their worst, that's when God can be at work refining us. Connecting uh, creation to our own lives, Martin Luther writes, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. Therefore, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, restores life only to the dead, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. If we think we're something, if we think we're somebody, if we think we've got everything figured out and can do it on our own, and that God somehow needs us for his plans, we're not yet in a position for God to work in and through us. But when we are nothing, when we're broken, when we're needy, when we're lost, when everything is thrown into chaos and darkness, that God can start to make something of us because his glory is seen to be at work. His glory shines through. God refines. Joseph's life, though, isn't just thrown into chaos and left like that. He's put into the refining fire, and then just as God spoke his word to form the earth, so God speaks his word to Joseph forming or reforming his life. And so here is the second truth of our passage. God reassures. God reassures. Look at verse 20. The angel of the Lord addresses Joseph. Joseph, son of David. 
There's dignity in that address. Uh, of course, Joseph is technically a descendant of David, but it's unlikely that when he went to school or, or to work or whatever that people called him Joseph, son of David. Uh, it's this sort of uh, almost obscure uh, way of, uh, uh, of addressing him, and yet it's very dignified. Perhaps Joseph never in his life has been called son of David before. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. The word Matthew uses here, it actually has an ongoing sense. Uh, never fear. No matter what, never fear to take Mary as your wife. Whatever may come, no matter what people say, no matter what danger you face, never fear to take Mary as your wife. What is God's word then that ministers to Joseph in his brokenness, that reassures him, that gives him confidence, that forms the chaos of his life? It's nothing other than the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. If, as uh, we've been saying in the Philippians series, the basic gospel message is Jesus' identity, mission, and call, we see all of those precisely here in this message in God's word to Joseph. What does the angel first tell G Joseph? He tells him about Jesus' identity. Look at verse 20. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This child is not the result of adultery, but rather it fulfills the promise, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, there's two questions about the virgin birth, or what we should really call the virgin conception. Uh, the birth was an ordinary birth, but it's the conception that is miraculous. The first is, can we really believe in a virgin conception? Sometimes this objection is posed in an especially lazy manner. Like, ancient people believed all sorts of crazy things, but surely we know better. But ancient agrarians knew just as well as we do that, as Marvin Gaye puts it, it takes two, baby. Okay? Uh, people know that. It's not something that we discovered since Jesus' day. So let's rephrase the question and ask, is it really believable or reasonable to believe that the God who creates all things out of nothing, who sustains all things in their being, who governs all nature by his word, caused an embryo to grow in Mary apart from the normal conception process. That is to say, if we confess, as we do in the creeds, that God is the maker of heaven and earth, that Christ was raised from the dead, that one day we will all be resurrected, is there anything particularly difficult about believing that he was born of the Virgin Mary? No, I don't think so. On the other hand, I suppose we could deny all of that, all the creeds, and say that the entire universe, the laws of physics, matter, energy, time, meaning, all that is simply popped into existence one day. And somehow that's more reasonable than thinking that God caused an embryo to grow without the ordinary process of conception. I don't think there's anything intrinsically unreasonable about believing this. It is peculiar, though, and so that leads us to the second and more important question. Why? the virgin conception. What does this doctrine mean? What's the point of it? The virgin conception is not an explanation of how God became man, as if it's one part God, one part human, and that's how you get Jesus. Not at all. Rather, it is the outward visible effect of a miraculous creative act into the middle of human existence. The virgin conception is an outward sign of the internal reality of the incarnation. The virgin conception means that Jesus is really and truly human. He is born of the human Virgin Mary. He's born like ordinary humans, but his conception is not by human potential 
or capabilities. Okay? Some humans didn't get together and think this up and cause it to happen. Jesus' conception, birth, life, indeed his death, resurrection, and ascension are all acts of God within the midst of human history. The virgin conception then is a sign that Jesus is also God himself, come as an embryo, born of a virgin, living a life, dying a human death. Jesus is fully God and fully man. But even more than that, the virgin conception is a sign that new creation has begun. The first creation begins with the Holy Spirit hovering over the darkness. And new creation begins with the Holy Spirit hovering over the darkness of Mary's womb. New life being born into the world. The renewal of all things has now begun. What does the angel tell Joseph next? Well, he tells him something about Jesus' mission. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. In part, even the gender of the baby in the pre-ultrasound era is assigned to Joseph. That Yes, I can believe what I've been told. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, uh, Yeshua, is, it means he saves. It's a very fitting name for the Messiah. But this Messiah wasn't going to save God's people by defeating the Caesar and driving the Romans out of Palestine. He comes to address an even more fundamental problem. He will save his people from their sins. At Christmas, sometimes people joke about who's naughty or nice or it being sinful to have another slice of pie, that sort of joking. But the Bible says sin is a much more serious problem. It's not little white lies. It's not little, uh, uh, you know, uh, pickpocketing, that sort of thing uh, that we excuse. Sin means that each of us, at some level, thinks that we are and everyone else should treat us accordingly. Sin means that we have set ourselves up in place of God, that we've rebelled against him. And we can get along that way for a while, but in the end, if every single one of us thinks that we're God and thinks everyone else around us should treat us accordingly, we're creating hell here on earth. This universal rebellion against God then deserves punishment from the true God whose place we've tried to take. Now this miraculous child shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will turn them back to God. He will restore creation. He will put, make it clear that God is the one who sits on the throne in heaven, not us. And he will take the consequences that we deserve for our rebellion. This, says the angel, was to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in the second name, we see Jesus' call, his offer, the offer of the gospel to be God with us. The promise of Christmas is about reconciliation of God with us in restored relationship. Our human problem is twofold. We're victims who have been hurt by others, and so our life is thrown into chaos. But in our rebellion, we're also perpetrators who hurt others. And you see, Jesus comes to answer both. In the midst of chaos of our lives, God speaks his word, the good news that Jesus comes to save us from our sins, that we can be forgiven for perpetrating injustice and wrong against others. 
But Jesus comes as God with us to live in solidarity with our brokenness and our pain. God doesn't just send a messenger. He comes himself to share in our situation. God and Jesus knows firsthand what it's like to live at the margins, to be abandoned by friends, to be homeless, to have food insecurity, to be doubted and questioned by your family, to be rejected by your own people. He knows what it is to be falsely accused, mocked, beaten, killed, buried. The full gamut of human life. He knows it firsthand. It's the promise of Christmas, God with us. Now Joseph is refined as his life is thrown into chaos. Joseph is reassured as God's word is spoken into his life. And then Joseph is called to respond. He's told, you name him Jesus. By naming Jesus, Joseph is recognizing the child as his own. He's legally adopting Jesus. He's saying, this baby is mine, legally, if not biologically. By naming Jesus, Joseph adopts him as his own son. And so Jesus is both son of God, conceived of a virgin, and the son of David, born to set his people free. Joseph adopts the son of God as his own. The son of God was born human so that we could be adopted by God. This was costly for Joseph. People could do the math. They could figure out that the birthday and the wedding date don't quite line up, that something's fishy. Joseph would have been teased and mocked, perhaps, for taking Jesus as his own. But Joseph then is a model of us for faith. God is at work in the darkness and disorder refining Joseph. God reassures Joseph. Then Joseph responds in obedience, taking Jesus as his own, owning him. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He was obedient. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This Advent season, your life too may seem like chaos, darkness, disorder. Uh, Kids have been out of school two days, and some parents might already be pulling their hair out, okay? It seems insane. And yet, is it possible that even, you know, if it's that relatively light disorder of kids at home or or more severe disorder and chaos in your life, is it possible that God is at work in the midst of the darkness and disorder, testing and refining? God's same word of reassurance to Joseph comes to us. This child is fully God, fully man, born to save his people from their sins. Come as God with us. And so how do we respond? We follow Joseph's model. We own him as our own. It's costly. It brings mocking and teasing, perhaps even rejection. It's costly. And yet to, as it were, adopt Jesus as our own, to own his name, and yet more truly to be adopted by God himself through Jesus is the greatest possible reassurance we can have at Christmas. God refines, it's painful and searing, but God also reassures through his word spoken into the midst of our lives. Here's the message of the birth of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we respond in gratitude that you were born in a humble estate for our sake, that you came to save us from our sins, that you came to live as God with us. 
I am sure this morning there are people in different situations. Some of us might feel like our lives are falling apart, like everything's gone off the rails. May we, Lord, be attuned to your work in our lives, to your refining work. As painful and searing as it may be, we ask that you would indeed refine us through this chaos. Others, Lord, uh, perhaps just need to hear for the first time or hear again this good news that Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. In this truth, true freedom is found. Lord, some may need to respond for the first time to this Christmas message, and I ask that you would be drawing them by your Holy Spirit even now. Others of us, Lord, like Joseph, try to live righteous lives, and yet we need to be reminded and reformed once again by your gospel message. May we once again find our purpose in Christ Jesus. May we own him as our own, no matter how costly it might be. May we have courage in the face of fears, grace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Amen.